Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Peter Carlson. I'm one of the elders and overseers here at this church. Um, and uh, as an overseer, we get opportunity to preach uh, every now and then. And uh, this is my chance. So I'm really excited to, uh, to bring that to you this morning. And uh, in case you don't know who I am, uh, that's me in the Vikings hat and the Twins shirt. I like Minnesota sports. And uh, that's gone real well for me over the years. Um, <laughs> It's my wife, Becky. She, uh, she's also on staff here as the office manager, and she's great. You should get to know her. And then those are our two kids. Uh, Elliot is here on the, uh, on the left going into third grade, and Zachary's going into second grade. Um, and uh, we love it here at Hiawatha Church. Becky and I were on the team that helped plant this church when it uh, originally started uh, years and years ago. And uh, yeah, it's just an extension of our family at this point. We really love it here. So we're in a sermon series right now that we're calling Big Questions. And what we did is towards the beginning of the summer, we sort of put this call out to, to the church and said, what are the questions that you have? What do you wish you uh, would hear us preach on on a Sunday morning? Or just questions about the Bible, questions about theology, about who Jesus is, um, all of that kind of thing. And we said, just send them in. And uh, we'll pick a few that we think are able to be turned into a sermon, and we'll bring those out. And uh, feel free to keep sending these questions in, um, even if we don't get to them uh, from the stage here. Uh, we do want to connect back with people uh, and sort of discuss and try to answer uh, some of those questions if we can, uh, sort of offline. So keep sending them in. And uh, I went and looked at the list of questions and uh, wanted to pick one to preach on. And uh, there was one question that I was really intimidated by, actually. And I thought to myself, I don't really want that one, but we'll, we'll see which other ones I want. But I felt like God kept bringing back this question to my mind and that he wanted me to preach on it anyway, and so I'm going to do that this morning. That, this is the question. What is the biblical view on depression and suicide? And then secondly, are those souls lost if they commit suicide? It's a huge question, a heavy question, not a softball question at all, but a question that I think is important and is definitely part of the cultural conversation right now in America and around the world, right? If you've watched the news at all or entertainment news, Lots and lots of fairly high-profile people have, have ended their own lives over the past number of years and um, even this year as well. People like uh, Anthony Bourdain, uh, Robin Williams. That's Chris Cornell. If you don't know who he is, he's a musician, talented musician. Uh, and then this woman is named Kate Spade. She was a designer, designed handbags, had a really uh, big following. And um, all of these people in the last year or, so, or a few years um, have ended their own lives. And going back even further, there have been many more, right? You think of Heath Ledger, or Elliot Smith, or back to Kurt Cobain. Over the years, many, many, many people who have been celebrities or just high profile have ended their own lives. But it's not just an issue for the wealthy and the famous. Um, suicide rates over the last few years have been going steadily up and increasing dramatically. Actually, from... 1986 to 1999, the suicide rates were declining a little bit, but the Centers for Disease Control have put out some stats recently that since 1999, the suicide rates have gone up by more than 30% in over half the states in the United States. Think about that. Since 1999, more than 30% increase in the suicide rate in over half of states. In the state of Minnesota, since 1999, the suicide rate has gone up by 40.6% since 1999. In this map, you see every state has seen an increase except for Nevada. Nevada actually saw a decrease of 1% in that time, but that's just a, a decrease in the rate. The overall rate is still higher than most states in the Union in Nevada. So it's still a problem there, it's just that it's slightly dipped down, even though they're still up there. In 2016 in the United States, 45,000 people ended their own lives through suicide. In Minnesota in 2016, it was the eighth leading cause of death overall in the state of Minnesota. Eighth leading cause of death overall in 2016. And for teens and young adults, it was the second leading cause of death overall in 2016. It's a huge, huge problem. And it's on the rise. So much so that the Center for Disease Control put out these stats and some things that they want people to consider and try to prevent suicide. So why? Why is this happening? Why is suicide on the rise in our country and around our world? 
While experts point to a lot of different factors, as you can probably imagine, um, no single factor is implicated in things like this, but they'll point to things like, well, there was economic downturn during that time. That affects people. What about bullying, especially in teens and young adults? Bullying can play a factor. Access to firearms, you'll hear people bring that up a lot. There are a lot more guns around. It makes it easier for people. What about failures in our mental health system? Sure, there have been, right, in some, in some areas. That can be a factor, sure. People po point to social media. The fact that we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people that we know or maybe don't know, we're seeing their perfect lives online all the time can make us feel depressed about our own life. Sure, that's a factor too. There are plenty of factors. But I would say that all of these things point to something a little bit deeper. All of these things point to something even deeper. And that is this. Our world is currently entrenched in a famine of hope. People in the world do not see hope in their situations, in their personal lives. There isn't enough hope. And when there's not enough hope, things get bad. Maybe a cause of this is just Western civilization. In the, in the last hundred years, as we've been advancing our culture and our technology, humanism and secular belief in just human ingenuity can really take hold in a culture. And this idea of like success and technology will ultimately provide peace and comfort and happiness for everyone. We will work towards a utopian society together and we will get this thing done. And I think as this has just dragged on for decades and decades and decades, we've realized that that's just not true at all. We aren't finding perfection. We aren't finding peace. We aren't finding a sense of hope in our world. Our culture keeps getting shocked over and over and over again when we flip on the news and we see more chaos, we see violence, we see failure, we see bad leaders, we see injustice, we see inequality, and we think, well, it shouldn't be this way. After all this time, why is it still this way? Why can't we change this? Why does this keep happening? What can we do to fix this? And why aren't we doing it? And it's easy to get from that to a point of hopelessness. If it hasn't changed by now, how will it ever change? Ever. There is sin in the world, and we see it day after day after day. Even, even people who have achieved their dreams, if you want to call them their dreams, they find that in that place, there is still hopelessness. Take Anthony Bourdain as an example, since he's more, one of the more recent ones that's been on the news. This is a guy who had an amazing life. He had a super cool job. He made great money, I'm sure, by traveling all over the world, which is awesome. He got to meet plenty of interesting people. He got to taste the best in food and drink that the world has to offer all the time. And he got relatively famous while doing it. That sounds like a great life to a lot of people. But Mr. Bourdain's success in life did not cancel out the fact that he struggled with depression for years and years and years. And in the end, he succumbed to suicide. We live in a world that is just running a deficit on hope constantly. A world that invests hope in things and then they get let down by those things and realize that they don't offer them peace and success. And when that happens, it takes the hope with it. When that thing fails, their investment is gone. Think of it like money, right? You invest in something and it fails, your money doesn't come back, it's gone. And when people run out of hope, that's when depression and suicidal thoughts and things like that gain more and more strength in their hearts. And this is something that society and the church both need to talk about, need to address. And thankfully, it's happening more and more in culture. But the church needs to be talking about this as well. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to talk about these issues. And it's going to be heavy for a time, but I assure you that there's going to be hope on the other end when we get there. So let's start by talking about suicide. What is the biblical view of suicide? That's our question for today, part of it, right? So when you look in the Bible, there are a few examples of suicide. King Saul is one who was in a battle and realized he was going to lose, and he fell on his sword and ended his own life. There are some other Old Testament, minor Old Testament characters um, who ended their lives as well. And then probably the most famous example in the Bible is Judas. Judas is the disciple who betrayed Jesus for payment to Jesus' enemies, got paid for it, led them to Jesus, Jesus was arrested, and then afterwards we read that Judas changed his mind and wished he hadn't done it and tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't take it back, 
and just consumed with grief, he killed himself, hung himself in a garden. But in all of these depictions in the, in the scripture, the authors don't pause and sort of unpack suicide as a, as a concept. They don't stop and say, well, here's what this means for the soul of King Saul. It's sort of just, this happened, now we're going to move on to what happened next. And so, if we want to get to what the actual biblical view on suicide is, we're going to have to go some other places, but we have many other places where we can talk about this. So, the first thing I want to tell you about suicide is that suicide, according to the Bible, is a destruction of God's temple. Suicide is destroying God's temple. We are created as human beings in the image of God. And it says that our bodies are dwelling places for the Spirit of God. And it says we are to honor God with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6 is one place where we read this. Paul is writing to this church and he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul is using this argument in this specific context to talk about sexual immorality. This is a church that was very licentious with their sexual immorality and, and preaching amongst themselves that it's okay because God gave us these bodies and we should be able to do whatever we want with them. That's part of God's plan. And Paul is writing and saying, that is not God's plan at all. And he's saying, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are to honor God with your body. So this, this includes sexual immorality, sure, but it also includes things like abusing our bodies with harmful drugs or excessive alcohol or anything like that. And it also includes things like suicide. This is not part of God's design. And it even goes as far as to say, you don't own yourself. Your body isn't even yours anymore when you believe in Christ. You are bought with a price by Jesus' death on the cross. God now owns your body. And therefore, if you are a believer and you believe this, then you need to honor God with your body that he has given you. Suicide destroys God's temple. So that's one thing that the scripture tells us about suicide. Secondly, suicide denies God's further plans in our lives. God has mapped out our lives. God has numbered our days, the scripture says. He has made plans for us. This is another church that Paul wrote to in Ephesus, and he wrote this in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, why did he do this? Why? Why did God do this? Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the work of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just think about this for a second. God has mercy. He redeems us. We're dead. He makes us alive. He raises us up. And why does he do this? He does this so that he can show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. He makes us alive so that he can be kind to us, so that he can make us rich in his kindness. And then at the end it says, this workmanship that God has done he created us, and then he set our lives before us. He set out these things for us to do, these good things that will bring him glory and bring us good, and just asks us to walk in them. He has this whole amazing, perfect plan for our lives. Suicide devalues this. Suicide devalues the fact that God has this plan laid out for us. It devalues the fact that he has made us alive in himself through Christ Jesus and raised us up, and it goes backwards, and it takes a different path. And I know the people who get to a point of suicide, and I'm sure there are many of you in this room, feel like this is the only way. Well, this is the only way. Life is, life is rough. We're going to talk about depression in a second, but life is bad. Life is rough. This is the only way. Those feelings are real. We don't discount those feelings at all. 
But I want you to know that suicide is a permanent solution to a problem that's temporary. It might feel like there is no end to the problems, and they can go on for a long, long time. But it's not true that there is no end. What's true is that suicide is a permanent solution to a problem that will fade over time and that you can get help for. It's like finding cockroaches in your house and deciding that you should just burn your entire house down rather than try to fix that small problem or call someone who's an expert on fixing that small problem. And maybe you think you have it under control and then you find more and then you think you have it under control and then you find more. And at some point you're like, enough, this house, the entire thing has to go. You can see how that thought process can happen. It happens for a lot of people. But burning down your house is permanent. And beyond that, it destroys a lot of other things that don't need to be destroyed in your life. So I hope you're seeing through all of these things that a biblical view on suicide is that suicide is a sin. But the second part of the question for today is, is it a sin that's unforgivable? Is it a sin that if someone who's a believer commits that sin, it's just over for them and there's no salvation? Is that what the Bible says? And the answer to that question is, no, the Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say that suicide is an unforgivable sin. You hear that phrase, unforgivable sin. That is in the Bible. This is what Jesus says in Mark 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So when people throw around that term of unforgivable sin, this is the place in the Bible that that comes from. And what Jesus is saying here is, the sin that is unforgivable is calling the work of the Holy Spirit demonic, is calling the work of God a lie. And the essence of that is saying, I don't believe that what God is doing is real, and I discount it and I reject it. It's, in essence, the sin of unbelief. And I think, as a biblical Christian, you must agree that if you die without believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the end. The Bible teaches there is no salvation for that. But you can, you can sin all you want in this life, and on your deathbed confess your sins, you will be saved. Dying in unbelief is the unforgivable sin. It's not suicide. Where does this idea come from? Where does this idea come from in our Christian culture that if, if you commit suicide, it's a straight-to-hell ticket? There is bad theology out there. There's an understanding that confession is necessary for salvation, and if you don't confess every single one of your sins, or at least the really big ones before you die, it's dicey. And that's just not true. We don't get that from the Bible. We don't get this idea that there are mortal sins, and if you commit that, well, there's a small set. If you do one of those, then forget about it. Unless you specifically confess that sin to a pastor before you die, then you're in huge trouble. We just don't find that in the Bible. We find this in the Bible. If you die without believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're not saved. But a biblical understanding is that confession is an important part of Christian living. Absolutely. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then he's, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all right, unrighteousness. Confession is important. But the grace of Jesus Christ covers even the sins that we forget about. The grace of Jesus Christ covers the bad, bad sins that we don't confess, but we are a true believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, the bottom line is this. Sin is worse than we think in our own hearts. Far, far worse than you think. You think you're a pretty good person. That's a lie. Sin is way worse than you think. But there's good news to that. God's grace is even bigger than you think. So yeah, you feel terrible when you have all this weight of sin on you. But there's good news that Jesus' grace can cover all of it. When Jesus died on the cross, he covered the sins of his people, past, present, future, all of it. It's covered. When we truly believe, we come to Jesus for forgiveness, he gives it, and he gives it unilaterally, no matter what your sin is. There's no certain time in your life that you must confess or it's all for nothing. Jesus' blood is effective. So I want to read this passage from 1 John because I think this really gets at the heart of it. So John is writing, and he says this. 
my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John is saying, look, part of the Bible here that I'm writing is so that you won't sin. Because sin is wrong. Sin separates us from God. And then John says this, but if anyone does sin, I really love that he puts that there, but if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John is saying, look, we are not to sin. Please don't. But I know you will. I know you will. But there's good news. When you do, we have an advocate for us before the Father, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that great news? That John is saying, look, sin is going to happen. You are believers, and I'm telling you, my children, don't sin. Here's, here is how your best life can be lived, by believing in Christ. But you will sin, but if you are truly in Christ, he advocates for you. The sins you haven't committed yet are covered when you are in Christ. So dying in an act of sin, if you're a believer, doesn't mean damnation. It means that all the way up to the end of your life, every sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Or think of it this way. What if I, this is really hard to believe, but what if I had a huge fight with my wife, like a huge shouting match. I never yell, but a huge shouting match with my wife. And we get so angry with each other that I just storm off. I can't even talk to her anymore. I get in my car, I drive away, and I'm so angry I have ugly, ugly anger and hatred towards my wife even in my heart because of this huge argument that we just had. And then somebody smashes into me and I die in a car crash. And the last thing on my heart is ugly hatred towards my wife. Does that mean that I'm not saved? No. It doesn't mean that. Even though in the Bible it says that hating your brother or sister is on the level of killing them, it's the same thing spiritually. But just because... I was killed in a moment of ugly sin doesn't mean Jesus rejects me. We have an advocate. Jesus says, he's mine, and I died for the sin that happened the moment before he died. Jesus says, his good life isn't going to save him. I'm going to save him. That's what Jesus says. So suicide is not an unforgivable sin by any means. If you have heard that, I'm sorry. Because that hurts, especially when a loved one of yours who's a believer has committed suicide. That hurts. But that is not the truth. Jesus' blood is stronger than their sin. Now this is the part where I want to go to great pains to stress that this is not licensed to commit suicide or otherwise embrace sin. Just because we know that every sin that we've ever committed is covered doesn't mean that we should live in our sin however we feel like it. Paul preaches against that in other places, says, should we go on sinning if there's so much grace? No, that's not who we are. We've been made alive in Christ. We are new creations. That is not who we are anymore. We should not embrace sin. But I understand that there can be a tension, especially for people who are in a place of deep depression who are contemplating suicide, there is a place where they say, I know that I will be with Christ on the other side of this act. Why would I not do it? Right? Paul talks about this very helpfully in Philippians. Philippians 1. This is Paul speaking to this church, and he says, For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul says, look, as a Christian, death is better because you will be with Christ. And Paul says, I am hard-pressed between these two. I don't know which I'm going to choose. Many of you have been in this position before in your lives where you say, I am hard-pressed between choosing death and choosing life right now. 
And Paul says, I have been there. I have struggled with that. I have been hard-pressed between the two. But here's what he says. But I have found that to remain in the flesh is more necessary. And he's convinced himself of that. He doesn't say it's better, because it's not. It will be better in eternity. But he has said, I have decided, I have decided, I've convinced myself that I will remain and continue with you because that is more necessary for your faith. It's more necessary for the plan that God has. Christ died to earn your salvation, so don't take it lightly that you have a life right now. Don't end it. God has a plan. He has a beautiful plan for your life. But he doesn't promise that that plan is going to be pain-free or happy all the time. That's never a promise that he gives us. So let's talk about the next part of our question here, which is depression. What's the biblical view on depression? With all of that said about suicide, okay, but what about this depression issue? We can go to a lot of different people in the Bible who struggle with depression. Much like today, there are a lot of people who struggle with depression. Here's, here's just part of a list that I pulled up. King David is one who struggled with depression. He wrote things like, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Just this deep depression over sin. Elijah is a prophet. He won a huge victory for God over the prophets of Baal and then had to go on the run for his life. And when he finally found a place to sit down, he prayed and said, Oh Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. Jonah, you know Jonah. He's the guy who got swallowed by a whale and then spit out. He went and preached the gospel to some heathen people and they all repented. And then he got deeply depressed after that and prayed, Oh Lord, please take my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Job, Job had a lot of terrible things happen to him. He, uh, at one point, cursed the day of his birth. Again, very deep depression, wishing he'd never been born. Moses, when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and saw that the people had, had created a golden calf, he knew that they had sinned, and he went back to God and said, I'm guessing you're going to kill all of them, and I wasn't part of it, but you should just kill me too, because I am so depressed at the sin of my people. And then Jeremiah, sometimes called the weeping prophet, he wrote this, Jeremiah 20, 18, why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Praying that to God. Why did I even come out of the womb if this is what it's going to be? These are pictures of what depression can be like for people. Even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death is praying and he, he says in his prayer, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Like I am so, so sad and depressed about what is coming that I feel like I could just die right now. Now, maybe this isn't clinical depression. Maybe this is grief and sorrow. We don't know. The fact of the matter is depression is an extremely complex thing. There's a wide spectrum of levels, a wide spectrum of manifestations to it. It's a clinical thing in a lot of cases. And I'm not a mental health professional, so I'm not going to stand up here and diagnose anything uh, or pretend to. Um, but I do want to say that it's very complex. There are a lot of things that factor into it. Sorrow and grief, not necessarily depression. Those are feelings that we get when things happen to us. Sometimes they help us to process these circumstances and then they just naturally fade out as we move forward in our life. Those are not necessarily depression. What we're talking about when we say depression, we're talking about those faucets of grief and sorrow in your mind are turned on and then left on for a long time, longer than seems natural to you. They flood your brain with sorrow and grief and despair and then leave that to fester for long periods of time. Clinical depression also deadens the brain's ability to feel joy. Think about that. It deadens your ability to feel joy. Even from things that were reliable sources of joy in the past, you go back to them thinking that this will help you get out of it and it doesn't work and then that just makes the problem worse. It's an invisible illness of the mind, but it can manifest itself in the body as well. If you talk to people who have struggled with deep, deep depression, there are many other symptoms that can come with that out in the body, physical symptoms. And some of those symptoms and, and the brain chemistry things can be helped by medication. And we're not here to say never take medication for depression, 
because those things can definitely help in a lot of scenarios. But again, it's so complex. I'm glad I'm not a mental health professional because some of those medications will help in some ways and make it worse in other ways. But medication can help, and care providers can talk through a treatment plan with you and things like that. Depression is real, and depression is very complex and deep. Charles Spurgeon, famous theologian, did a sermon on Psalm 88, and he wrote this, which I thought was really fantastic and heartbreaking. The mind can descend far lower than the body. For it, there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. How's that for mental illness and depression, right? You can only be injured so much in the body before your body gives up and you die, but when it's a mental illness, when it's something of the mind or the soul or the heart, this can go on and on and on. And you can see how heartbreaking this is and how people who struggle with depression, maybe you, reach a point where you say, I could have one death or a thousand. I think I want to choose the one. You can see how depression often can lead to that place, and it's so heartbreaking. And I want to tell you that Christians are not immune to depression. Again, if you have heard this in the church or from other Christians, well, if you were really a Christian, then you would just get happy. You would just get joyful. You just put on the right song and you'd get out of it. Or you just go to church more often, you'd be able to shake it. And that's not always true. Christians are not immune to depression. Depression can strike anybody, no matter what they believe. Clinical depression, a lot of times, has to do with a chemical imbalance in your brain. Now I can put on my biologist hat for a second. Your brain makes chemicals, and those chemicals make you think and do things, or make you feel things. This is real. And when your brain makes too much of certain chemicals, you'll feel too much of that thing. That's just the reality. There's a clinical aspect to depression, which is why medication can sometimes help. Some of these chemicals can cause a deep depression. Some chemicals can make us think seriously about killing ourselves, even when we never, ever thought of that before. You ever watch a commercial? This happens a lot when I'm watching football, and a commercial will come on for some kind of medication, and like, ask your doctor to prescribe you this. And then at the end, there's like this, could cause blah, 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 and all these, all these side effects are out there. And then one of them is, it might cause you to have suicidal thoughts. And I'm like, so wait, okay, I could take this medication for whatever it is, let's just say hair loss, for no reason at all, I'm picking that. <laughs> I could take this medication for hair loss, and even though I never, ever thought about killing myself before, because I'm taking this pill, I would start thinking, maybe I should kill myself. How is that even real? That's craziness. But the fact of the matter is, there are chemicals that your brain can make or that you can add to your brain that give you depression, make you feel depressed, stop you from feeling joy, make you think about ending it all. And it's all because of chemicals that your brain makes. So maybe you find yourself thinking this question, why would God design our brains that way? That seems cruel. Why in the world would our brains be capable of making a chemical that deadens our ability to feel joy? Why? And there's an answer for this. It's sin. It's because of the fall. We are broken people. We have collectively rejected God's perfect designs for us. And part of the fall from way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, when people disobeyed God, it broke all of creation. It says in parts of the Bible that creation is now under a curse because of sin. Nothing is as, is as it should be in this world because of sin. Now, I am not saying that a person's personal act of sin is going to cause God to strike them with depression. That's not what I'm saying. We do not see that in the Bible. What I am saying is we live in a fallen and broken world where everything is messed up. We have rejected his designs and plans as a species, as mankind, and also individually in our hearts. We've rejected those good and perfect plans, and now we're left with bad and imperfect designs and plans. If you read in Genesis, one of the things that happens after the fall, God says to Eve, because of sin, childbirth will be very painful, which means before it wouldn't have been. This is part of it. This is all part of sin in the world. And depression 
is a physical depiction of a spiritual reality for all of us. Whether you've struggled with depression in your life or not, the concept of depression is a physical depiction of what a spiritual reality is for all of us, just like any other physical ailment would be. When we think, well, why do our bones start to hurt when we get old? Well, it's because the bones of your soul are weak. Why am I unable to feel joy in my brain when I want to? It's because we are born with souls that can't feel joy. That's how we are born. That is how we are and how we exist in this state. We are under the curse of sin. We are broken people, all of us. And that results in things like depression. But now we're going to turn the wheel because there is hope. There is hope for broken people. In the midst of a world and a culture that is living in this famine of hope, Jesus offers us hope freely. And we're going to spend the rest of our time with three things that I want to leave you with about hope. First of all, Hope in Christ. Hope in the man, Jesus Christ. Let's read Psalm 34, 18 through 22. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. These are encouraging words, but who are these words about? Are these words about us, that when we are brokenhearted, the Lord will save us? Yeah, kind of. But ultimately, these words are about Jesus Christ himself. When David is writing this, he is writing, and maybe he knows and maybe he doesn't, but the Holy Spirit is informing him to write these words that are going to be ultimately fulfilled on the cross in the man Jesus Christ. The Lord is near to Jesus when he's brokenhearted, and he saves Jesus when he's crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous Jesus, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's true. That happened on the cross. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate Jesus will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus fulfills this. So when we are finding ourselves assailed with wave after wave of affliction and brokenheartedness and feeling crushed in spirit, have you ever felt crushed in your spirit, just deeply wounded in your spirit? That is what Jesus went through on the cross for you. This is about Jesus Christ. And then at the end, look at this hope. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him, now we're talking about us, when we take refuge in Christ, we will not be condemned. Jesus' life, his earthly life, was one of sweet, sweet ministry and healing, but it was also one of rejection and toil and exhaustion and grief and homelessness and feeling the weight of the sinful world around him. You see these pictures of Jesus coming to a hill and looking out over Jerusalem and just starting to weep because he thinks of all the people out there who are broken and in need of a Savior, and he just starts weeping, this weight upon him. It was not an easy life. And through all of that, good and bad, his life is just a big arc, a big trajectory that ends on a bloody cross with his painful, torturous death. This is the life that he lived for us to give us hope. He knew that God's plan for salvation was perfect and would offer hope for him and for us. He endured for us. His sacrifice was for us to give us hope. Hebrews 12, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in those times of hopelessness and depression, Consider Christ who endured these things for us and let that help you to not grow weary and faint-hearted because you have hope. Because of Jesus Christ, you have hope. 
So hope in Christ. Secondly, hope in the gospel. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of that, because of the hope he had that he would be glorified and raised, we know that our sufferings are only temporary. Again, you may not feel that. You may not feel that today. But it doesn't make it untrue. 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary afflictions, the affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see how he's contrasting here. He's saying, yes, we have trouble. Yes, our outer self is wasting away. But there is a promise. Our inner self is being renewed. Light momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. Things that are seen, transient. Things that are unseen, eternal. Forever. That is a promise that we have because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us. This is a promise that we have to cling to. Afflictions here, transient. Weight of glory, eternal, forever. If I sat down with you to watch a movie and I said, look, before I show you this movie, I need to tell you, the ending of this movie is the happiest most fulfilling, most perfect ending to a story that's ever been crafted, ever. But the first act is rough. You're not going to like it all the time. Some of the stuff that goes on is dark and is sad and is depressing. But I promise you, when this movie finishes, you'll look back and say, I barely even remember that first act. I hated a lot of that stuff. But now that I'm at the end and I look back, like this story is the most perfect story that's ever been written, ever. Give it all the awards. That's your story if you're in Christ. You might be in the first act right now, but because of the gospel, there is hope. There is hope that we have an eternal weight of glory at the other end of this story. Don't turn off the movie in the first act. Let it play. Their promise is here. He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So look to those things that are unseen that are ours in the gospel because of Christ. So hope in Christ, hope in the gospel, and then out of those two things, hope in the church. Oh yeah, this one too. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's that story, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So hope in Christ, hope in the gospel, hope in Christian community. Right away in Genesis, this is before the fall, God has created everything, and everything he's created, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, I like it, it's good. He creates Adam, he says Adam is good, and then the first thing that's not good, it is not good that the man should be alone. So he creates Eve, puts them together. He knows right away that being alone is not good for people. I'm a person that likes to be alone a lot of the time. Not all the time. Being together is important. Ecclesiastes 4 just sort of lays it out in like a proverb style. Look, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. They can get more work done. Or, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Or again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold, threefold cord is not quickly broken. So there's just some sense to that, right? If you need a job to be done, two are better than one. If somebody falls down and doesn't have somebody to pick him back up, that's rough. But if he has a friend with him, he's like, oh, here, I'll help you back up. That's great. Or if you need to stay warm, it's nice to have another person there. That's how it is 
with the church. God did not design you, Christian, to be alone. God did not design you to say, I think I'm really struggling with some serious depression, but I better not tell anyone about it, because what are they going to think? Are they going to think that I don't have enough faith? I should never tell my community group leader about these things that I struggle with, because what are they going to think? Please don't think that. The Bible says it is not good for you to be alone, especially to struggle alone. This is the church. The church is here for you. Listen to this from the early church in the book of Acts. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is just like a little snippet of how they're doing life together, but I love that phrase. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were like one organism. They were together. They shared things with each other. Physical things? Yes. But not just physical things. They shared life together. The church should be a safe place to talk about things like depression and suicidal thoughts. That is not a taboo subject here at Hiawatha. Don't be afraid to tell someone that kind of a struggle. Don't struggle in silence. When we're living this way, where the church is of one heart and one soul, when we have a joy in our lives and we share it with our church, that joy is multiplied. You don't lose any of what you have, but it's, it's built up in other people. The joy goes out and is multiplied. And when you're in a church and you share a burden, it's divided. You lose a little of that burden in the telling. And someone else picks some of it up for you. And someone else picks some of it up for you. And someone else picks some of it up for you. When you share a joy in the church, it's multiplied. And when you share a burden, it's divided. It's the beautiful thing about a Christian church that God has designed, the Holy Spirit has enabled. So in this church, we're with you. We're here for you. We have counseling services available for you. If you want to talk to someone, Emily is on staff. She is one of those people who knows what she's talking about, unlike me. Talk to the pastors. Talk to me. Talk to someone. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to your friend. Put down some roots in a church, be it this church or a different church. Put down some roots and be known so that when these things come, when your depression flares up later in life, when you think you've conquered it and it comes roaring back, you can tell someone. And it's not this huge, horrible, faith-shaking thing. It's like saying, hey, I'm dealing with eczema. It's not that big a deal. We've been there. We understand that it's just a thing that happens. And Christians are not immune. But when you struggle in silence and solitude, it gets so much worse. Especially suicide. Suicide is an act in solitude, right? Suicide is, is an act in solitude. So share your burden. Allow your burden to be cut in half by telling another person. Allow it to be divided out when you tell your group, tell your church leaders, tell a counselor here or someplace else. It's important. The church is here for you. And depression is real, but you don't need to struggle alone with that depression. Hope in Christ. Hope in the gospel. Hope in your Christian community. So I'm going to wrap up with a few just quick hit application points here for you to take with you. First of all, we've been talking about hope and hopelessness. Don't invest your hope in this world. Don't sink all of the hope in your life into something like your work because it will let you down. Put your hope in Christ alone and that sure reward of salvation, the riches that he has won and imparted to you through his son Jesus Christ. Number two, just believe that Christ has regarded, like we just saying, Christ has regarded your broken, helpless estate and has done something about it. He has shed his own blood for your soul. Believe that. You do not need to fear your banishment from God because of your sin. You do not need to think like, before I go to bed tonight, I better confess everything I can think of from this day because if I don't and I die, I'm, I'm done. It's not, I will not see the Lord. No, believe that Christ has done something for you. Christ has covered every sin from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. When you believe in him, it is covered. He has regarded your brokenness. 
He has looked at you and seen you helpless and has not left you there. When you believe, he has bought you with his own blood. And it is well with your soul. Thirdly, lean on your church in these times of affliction. They will come. They will come. When you believe, you are not guaranteed a perfect and happy and joy-filled life. You are guaranteed a life like Christ's, of toil and affliction and rejection and despair in a lot of moments in your life, but of such great, great joy as well. But when you're in those times of affliction, lean on your church. We are here for you. We want to share that burden. We want to divide it out and take some of it off your shoulders. We want to embody the gospel to you in that way because Christ has ultimately removed the burden of sin from your heart. He has healed your spiritual depression when you believe. And that part is sealed and done. So lean on your church in those times of affliction. And then lastly, just know that there is hope in a hopeless world. When you're encountering those waves of hopelessness, when you flip on the TV and it's all bad news and hopelessness all the time, just know that there is hope in a hopeless world, and then it's right there at the cross. That is the source of hope. That is the source of hope that will last, hope that will carry you through those dark times, hope that will save your soul for eternity because he has promised that he would. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for hope. Thank you that you have given us yourself, your life, your death on the cross. You have imparted to us healing from our sins. Thank you that you do not send us away from your presence when we sin, but that you advocate for your people. And I pray that those people in this room, and there are many, who struggle with depression day in and day out for weeks and months on end, those people who have seriously sat down and felt hard-pressed between life and death, and it's a serious choice, pray that right now, you would instill them with a sense of hope in the gospel, that you would show them yourself, that you would help them to consider your life and your death on the cross, that you would embolden them to reach out to someone within this church, to not be silent and struggle in silence, but to share the load. Just as you have removed that load of sin from us, I pray that you would enable this church to carry the load of depression and hopelessness from our people and point them towards you and the sweet promise of an eternal weight of glory that will never fade and that is promised to us through your blood. Jesus, I thank you for that promise. Pray that now we respond together in worship of you for your great love for us. Amen.